Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is a recording of Siegfried Kurz conducting the Staatskapelle Dresden with solo horn players Peter Damm, Klaus Pizonka, Dieter Panzer, and Johannes Friemel, performing Robert Schumann's Concertstück, or concert piece, for four horns and orchestra. The number four has been a beloved ensemble size for so many great compositions, and today on Music for Life we will explore some of the great quartets of music history. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will explore the prevalent usage of four-part singing throughout church history and some surprising details about its origins. And in our Classroom Corner, we will discuss the benefit of scales and how the number four factors into these building blocks of music. this and more on today's episode of Music for Life, Music for Four. This season, we have been exploring some of the great instrument groupings throughout music history. We've discussed some of the great solo repertoire from instruments that usually are not heard completely solo. We've looked at the great pairings of history, and most recently, the great trios of history. Today, let's explore compositions that combine or feature four instruments together. The number four comes to mind in music in a handful of ways. It shows up in the building block of melody, the scales of music, the sequences of steps that comprise the eight-note octave are split into what's called two tetrachords, tetra meaning four. I'll talk more about this in our classroom corner. The number four is also a favored number when it comes to the number of movements found in symphonies or larger compositions of chamber music. In rhythm, the most commonly used recurring stress pattern contains four beats. So common, in fact, that composers usually just write a C at the beginning of the score where the time signature usually goes to show that the piece is in the common four beats per bar stress pattern. And also quite commonly, a musical phrase is comprised of four of those bars. This is quite common in folk songs and hymns. You could probably look at any hymnal and see that most phrases fit on one line, and that line consists of four bars. You would also see the number four on those pages in another way. That is the common usage of four notes to construct choral harmony, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Four parts allows there to be a melodic line with the three notes of the triad underneath, and most often the melodic line includes notes from the triad. So four-part harmony means that usually one of those three notes in the chord will be doubled in another part. This gives stability to the harmonies being selected and written by the composers. 
Before we get into the actual quartet ensembles of the standard repertoire, let's talk more about this idea of four-part singing, and that leads us right into our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. The number four is used in the biblical record as relates to music. Some of the great Hebrew poet composers of the Old Testament used tetrameter in their lyrics. That is four-syllable feet per line, or four groupings of two syllables per line. This rhythmic device can be found in Proverbs 31, for example. We've also discussed in this segment the four instruments mentioned together in 1 Samuel 10.5. This is where Samuel told Saul that the students of Samuel's college would greet him with a wind instrument, a string instrument, a louder pipe instrument, and a percussion instrument. As we've seen, these four instruments very well may be four families of instruments. And interestingly enough, our modern orchestra is comprised of mainly four families of instruments, strings, winds, brass, and percussion. But the use of the number four that I want to discuss in this segment has to do with four-part choral writing that was likely in use in the early church. Now, there isn't anything explicit in the biblical record about this, but there is some interesting information about this in early church history. Surely many in traditional Christianity are familiar with the four-part hymn writing prevalent in many of their churches throughout more recent history, from the time of Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation, through the time of William Billings in early colonial America, and even through modern times. The Bible is clear about the abundance of congregational singing happening in the New Testament church. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark show that Jesus Christ and his disciples sang a hymn together after keeping Jesus' last Passover. In the early years of the church, just after the death of Jesus, there is mention of the brethren lifting up their voices to God in one accord, which can be found in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. Now, that section doesn't use the word singing or chorus or hymn, but it's clear from this account, from the fact that the words they were uttering in one accord were from a psalm, that this was a case of congregational singing in the early New Testament church. References to congregational singing in Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, Colossians, and Ephesians show that congregational singing was still very much a part of the church of God decades after the death of Christ. Now, as to the nature of these hymns, were they in four-part harmony? Well, here's some interesting history that we find a few centuries later. We know a murky veil is cast over the history of the church, and along with that, its music. Around 70 AD, when Titus conquered Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple. Abraham Edelson writes in Jewish Music, A short time after the destruction of the temple, the entire art of the instrumental music of the Levites fell into oblivion, and two generations later the sages totally lost all technical knowledge and all sense of the reality of that silenced music. The true church of God became severely persecuted, and the Christianity that emerged in the history books a century after the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem was quite different than that founded by Christ. Most of mainstream Christianity and the state-sponsored religion of the Dark Ages was entrenched in what you might call the Dark Ages of monophonic music, that is, one note sung at a time. And not only had instruments been banned from the worship services, but even the participation of the congregation. However, there was a remnant of congregational singing being kept alive in the remote corners of the Roman Empire, and the veil on it is lifted at the onset of the Protestant Reformation. Then we see congregational singing having been practiced in the remote areas of France, Portugal, Sardinia, and Bohemia. 
In the March 1962 issue of the Good News magazine, William H. Ellis writes, These were dark ages indeed, for the beautiful church music that had inspired singing in the days of David. No longer were people familiar with the accounts of spiritual edification that the apostles and early church received from singing hymns together. The true church, on the other hand, though scattered, persecuted, and hiding out for the most part, would have kept alive the proper use of music in worship. This preservation of the proper forms of congregational singing, however meager, was brought to light when Martin Luther attempted to revive congregational singing. He found that instead of it having died out, it was actually being preserved among people claiming to be a continuation of the church founded by Christ himself. Here's a quote from Volume 6 of the 1890 edition of the Americanized Encyclopedia Britannica. The persecuted Bohemian churches settled on the borders of Moravia sent to Martin Luther Michael Weiss, who not long afterward published a number of German translations from old Bohemian hymns. Michael Weiss is a major character in the little-known true history of God's true church, against which the gates of hell could not prevail, Jesus said. These Bohemians were, in fact, the small and persecuted surviving remnant of God's people who had fled from the empire. They preserved and practiced congregational singing through these centuries. Soon after Weiss's visit, Luther began work on the first Protestant hymnal. At one point earlier in that history, members of the true church were known as the Waldenses, they were known, according to William Beatty's book, for their musical practices. It says, among the Waldenses, a knowledge and taste for sacred music is diligently inculcated, and thus, being early instructed in vocal harmony, their psalmody is as correct in sound as it is rich in expression. And the nature of this congregational singing, as can be seen in the hymns and chorales of the Renaissance era, the time of the Protestant Reformation, borrowing again from Michael Weiss and the Bohemian remnant of the church, was a four-part distribution of the harmony. Here is a hymn from the late Renaissance called God is Our Refuge. It's part of a 1592 collection of hymns known as Est's Psalter, printed by Thomas East, who specialized in printing music during the early days of the printing press, though we don't know who the composer of all the hymns are in this collection. This hymn is set to the tune Winchester Old, and the text is an adaptation of Psalm 46. Here is a recording our choir made here on the stage of Armstrong Auditorium. This is in the typical four-part vocal harmony that most hymns are in, and additionally, it contains four verses. This has been Sounds of Scripture.
are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Four, and in it we are exploring the great quartet repertoire of music history. We just heard a hymn from the Renaissance era, God is Our Refuge, recorded on the stage of Armstrong Auditorium right here on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College, where this program is produced. Not only was that a four-verse hymn, but it was, more importantly, a representation of the four-part harmony so prevalent in hymns and chorales of church history, as we just discussed in our Sounds of Scripture segment. As we begin our discussion of standard music history, we will look at the era that followed the Renaissance, the Baroque era. In our discussion of duos and trios in previous episodes, we referenced the genre known as the concerto, a piece that features a solo instrument or small group of instruments juxtaposed with an orchestra. And we talked about some double concertos that featured two solo instruments and orchestra in our Music for Pairs episode, and some triple concertos for three featured instruments along with the orchestra in our Music for Trios episode. So today let's talk about a great quadruple concerto of the Baroque era. This is Johann Sebastian Bach's Concerto for Four Harpsichords. It's actually his arrangement of Antonio Vivaldi's Concerto for Four Violins in B minor. But since we'll hear plenty of violins today, I want to play Bach's version. He puts it in a different key, A minor, and scores it for this unique quartet of keyboard instruments. We're going to hear the third movement. This is a recording of the Academy of Ancient Music with harpsichordists Colin Tilney, Christophe Rousset, David Moroni, and Christopher Hogwood. Thank you. 
four harpsichords, Colin Tilney, Christophe Rousset, David Moroni, and Christopher Hogwood, in that recording with the Academy of Ancient Music, performing Johann Sebastian Bach's Concerto for Four Harpsichords, actually an arrangement or transcription Bach made of Antonio Vivaldi's Concerto for Four Violins. As we move into the classical era now, we see the formation of one of the most utilized quartets in all the repertoire, the String Quartet. was basically the innovation of Franz Josef Haydn. It consists of two violins, viola and cello. The instrument grouping was used occasionally before Haydn, but he turned it into a significant genre or type of fine art music that followed a specific format. Let's hear Haydn's string quartet, Opus 76, number 3, nicknamed the Emperor, called that because Haydn used the melody he wrote for the Austrian national anthem as the second movement. I played that movement on one of our earlier episodes, but let's hear the sprightly first movement. Here's a recording by the Tokyo String Quartet. Thank you. 
That was the Tokyo String Quartet performing the first movement of Haydn String Quartet in C, Opus 76, Number 3. With Haydn, the string quartet as an important genre and form of music was born. And with the quartets in the Opus 76 set, the genre is thought to have grown past infancy into a certain maturity. Toward the end of the classical era leading us into the next era for sure, Beethoven was writing completely revolutionary string quartets. He was the former student of Haydn, and he had learned a lot from this pioneer of the genre. In fact, Beethoven learned how to write string quartets, it is said, by simply copying by hand Haydn's string quartets. Far from plagiarism, this was a fantastic lesson in composition for Beethoven, and it brings us to these monumental works from the end of Beethoven's life, the string quartets from his late period, as we define Beethoven's output simply in early, middle, and late. The early sounds a lot like Haydn, the middle is the most popular stuff, and the late period is his most profound and meditative works. These last six string quartets are considered some of the greatest music ever written. When Beethoven wrote these, on his deathbed, mind you, some composers of the day didn't esteem them very highly. Composer Louis Spohr called them indecipherable, uncorrected horrors. These pieces were so different than the string quartets of the time. Some knew the pieces were great but didn't know why. One musician apparently commented, we know there is something there, but we do not know what it is. Franz Schubert, on the other hand, recognized the greatness. After hearing a performance of the string quartet number 14 in C-sharp minor, he said, after this, what is there left for us to write? Schubert's last musical request was supposedly to hear that quartet again before he died, which he did five days before his death. It was also apparently Beethoven's favorite of the final set of quartets that he wrote, the string quartet number 14. Later in history, composer Richard Wagner said the first movement reveals the most melancholy sentiment expressed in music. That's the movement we're hearing. First movements of most chamber music, especially those in this time period, were relatively fast. This movement is marked adagio ma non troppo e molto espressivo. Slow, but not too much, and very expressive. Here is a recording by the Guarneri Quartet. Thank you. 
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. On today's episode, we are exploring the great quartet repertoire of music history in an episode I've titled Music for Four. That was the Guarneri Quartet playing the first movement of Beethoven's String Quartet No. 14 in C-sharp minor, Opus 131. It is one of the late Beethoven String Quartets. Late isn't referring to punctuality, but the works basically of Beethoven's last decade of life. And considered his most profound contribution to music history, the greatness of these works rivaling the output of any composer since. I wish I had more time to spend on these, but I might just recommend you go find a recording of Beethoven's String Quartet number 15, the next one, and find a secluded spot for about 18 to 20 minutes and listen to the epic third movement, third out of five total movements. The movement was marked as being written in gratitude to God for healing from a near-fatal illness. I'll actually put a link to a recording in the show notes for today, and we can post that link on our social media outlets at Music for Life PCG on Twitter and Facebook. We will hear more from the string quartet today for sure, but as we move into the Romantic era, I want to favor a couple different kinds of quartets. We'll hear a piano quartet and a famous vocal quartet from an opera. Now, the piano quartet is not four pianos. Like a piano trio, which is violin, piano, and cello, a piano quartet is violin, piano, viola, and cello, so a piano trio plus the viola. One of the great piano quartets of this era is by Johannes Brahms. We're going to hear the fourth and final movement of the piano quartet in G minor. This movement is titled Gypsy Rondo, a fast finale that is considered one of the most difficult movements to perform in all of Brahms' chamber music. This is a recording with pianist Emmanuel Axe, violinist Isaac Stern, violist Jaime Laredo, and cellist Yo-Yo Ma. Thank you. 
That was pianist Emmanuel Axe, violinist Isaac Stern, violist Jaime Laredo, and cellist Yo-Yo Ma in the challenging finale movement, the Gypsy Rondo movement of Brahms's Piano Quartet in G minor, Opus 25. A piano quartet consists of a piano, violin, viola, and cello. Another great quartet of the Romantic era is found in the genre of opera. Giuseppe Verdi's opera Rigoletto is based on the Victor Hugo play. Act 3 contains a quartet that is most famous for its musical ability to depict four characters with four different points of view simultaneously. After attending the opera, Hugo himself said, If I could only make four characters in my plays speak at the same time and have the audience grasp the words and the sentiments, I would obtain the same effect. The story is too broad to fully explain here. In brief a summary, though, the father, the title character, and the baritone, once the duke, the tenor, killed for hurting his daughter, Gilda, the soprano. The duke is being lured to his murder by the sister of an assassin, who's the mezzo-soprano. The daughter's heart is breaking as she overhears the duke so easily ensnared, and Rigoletto's point of view remains unchanged, convicted to his revenge. Other opera composers have attempted such simultaneous combining of musical lines and attitudes, but never before or since, arguably, has such a beautiful whole come out of the sum of the parts. Have a listen. Richard Bonning conducts the London Symphony Orchestra, and our singers are soprano Joan Sutherland, tenor Luciano Pavarotti, baritone Cheryl Milnes, and mezzo-soprano Huguette Tourangeau. Piangere non vuoi, 
That was Joan Sutherland, Luciano Pavarotti, Cheryl Milnes, and Huguette Tourangeau in the London Symphony Orchestra's recording of Verdi's Rigoletto, conducted by Richard Bonning, one of the great quartets of the operatic literature. As we move into the 20th century, I want to play another string quartet. Two great quartets can be found in the repertoire of the French Impressionists Claude Debussy and Maurice Ravel. Impressionism was a movement in France around the turn of the 20th century, which we've described at length on this program before. Speaking of these two string quartets, Michael Walsh said this in his book, Who's Afraid of Classical Music? Forget what you've heard about the quartet being the most intellectual form of music. They're talking about the Germans, not the French. I played the fourth movement of Ravel's quartet on a previous episode. Let's hear the delightful second movement. Usually the second movement of the four movements of a string quartet would be slow. The third would be the dance or scherzo movement, but Ravel puts this scherzo movement as the second movement. It follows the strict classic form of scherzo trio scherzo, a fast triple meter first section, a contrasting middle section, and a third section that is identical to the first section. But Ravel achieves quite a unique sound from the group by having the opening of the scherzo section be entirely plucked, a technique known on bowed string instruments as pizzicato. The tempo marking for this movement is in French, not Italian like most tempo markings are. It is assez vif, très rythmé, which means tolerably quick, very rhythmic. This is a recording of the Juilliard String Quartet.
That was the second movement of the String Quartet in F by Maurice Ravel. We heard the Juilliard String Quartet in that recording. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. Every music student is familiar with practicing scales, and as mentioned earlier, the scales being used are a series of stepwise notes, and those steps are based on two tetrachords, or two four-note groups. A C tetrachord and a G tetrachord make the C major scale. Neither tetrachord needs any sharps or flats, so that's why a C major scale has no sharps or flats. Or for the pianist, it's all on white keys. Taking a G tetrachord, and then playing the next tetrachord after it, the D tetrachord, requires using an F sharp to keep the same spacing. So a G scale has one sharp in it. Using the second tetrachord of any scale as the first tetrachord of the next scale helps the student create all the scales and to discover how many sharps and flats are in each scale on their own. There's plenty online about this, but beyond the music theory that tetrachords and scales teach students, the physical execution of practicing scales is of such enormous benefit to the student. Since scales are among music's main building blocks, students will encounter scales innumerable times in their musical journey. When practiced correctly, proper fingering for a scale-like passage in a piece will be automatic if the technique is already being practiced regularly in scale-based exercises. As a result, sight reading will become far easier. If a pattern appears in music that is recognizably a scale, it will not require careful note reading on the part of the musician, but rather will translate from the muscles into the instrument automatically. Additionally, the dexterity of a musician will improve once the muscle memory of that motion has been firmly established. Practicing scales is great for training the ear, particularly for stringed instruments and voice. Learning how to hear imperfections in tone will help that musician work to maintain proper tuning, articulation, quality, and consistency throughout the scale. With instruments other than the piano, strong intonation is developed with scale practice because the student is required to check the tuning of each note while ascending or descending the scale. The distance between each note must be extremely accurate or it will be out of tune. Regular scale practice also helps develop accurate timing, or evenness of rhythm, as we'll sometimes refer to it. Slowly at first, and usually practice with a metronome, scales encourage the development of an inner sense of timing in a way that most exercises cannot. Scales provide the opportunity for a musician to strip away several other variables in playing an instrument, such as counting, dynamics, or note reading, and they simply focus on this one technical aspect. This allows an opportunity for a music student to build a strong foundation Foundation, which will undoubtedly help them become a better musician. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Four, and in it we have explored the great quartet repertoire of music history. We've heard string quartets, vocal quartets, quartets that included the piano, and even one that included four harpsichords. We talked about the prevalent usage of four-part singing throughout early church history in our Sounds of Scripture segment, and in our classroom corner we discussed the benefit of scales and how the number four factors into these building blocks 
box of music. Finally, let's have our dessert for today, where we hear an example from the popular or folk tradition to end the program. The quartet is an extensively utilized group size for all sorts of popular and folk ensembles. I want to play a grouping of four instruments that's quite different from what we've heard today. This is a classical guitar quartet, the Romeros Guitar Quartet, but they are playing a traditional Spanish folk melody. From their 1997 album, this is the original Romeros Guitar Quartet, Celedonio, Angel, Pepe, and Celine, playing the tune Sevillanas. You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.